0: I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's acting Thread and species ambassador, and this is the DOC Sounds of Science podcast. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by DOC's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tene, he kona i purangi tene e pa ana kinga Sounds <laughs> of Science. Today's episode is with Michelle Bradshaw, who is our National Bird Banding Officer. Kia ora, Michelle. Kia
1: ora, Erica. Ko Michelle Bradshaw, tōku ingoa. Hi, Erica. My name's Michelle Bradshaw. Kei te papa ata whai e mahi ana. I work at the Department of Conservation.
0: Kia ora. Michelle's job is truly one of a kind. Aotearoa has only one bird banding officer, and we are talking to her. Michelle administers the National Bird Banding Scheme, which coordinates the banding of birds within New Zealand. She's an expert on why it's important to band, what to do if you find a banded bird, and how to become a certified bander. She's so into it that she's wearing an albatross band on her finger. Let the banding banter begin. Michelle, describe for us what your role entails. As banding officer, I coordinate the
1: NZNBBS, the New Zealand National Bird Banding Scheme. And that is, I keep track of the bands, the banders, and the banded birds. So let me see, that's over 2 million bands, 1.6 million banded birds, 400,000 odd reciting events, and over 1,000 banders. Uh, The banding office also oversees the certification system, ensuring that operators are competent. We run a shop, um, bands and banding equipment. We provide advice on permits and projects. We do lots and lots of admin and emails and manage the bird banding database, which is dubbed Falcon. Now, of course, I don't do all of this by myself. I'm assisted by a reciting's officer, Sandy, and a technical administrator, Anamika, as well as a volunteer, uh, Lance. And then there's the banding advisory committee, which is a panel of experts that provide me with all kinds of advice. But we don't only manage banding of birds. There's also other marking techniques such as microchips or transponders. And in fact, we're not limited to only birds. We also manage marking of bats you know, the ones that won the Manu of the Bird competition last year. So that's what I do as banding officer.
0: Wow, that is quite a lot. So how did, how did you become the banding officer?
1: I first travelled to New Zealand about 20 years ago. I, I'd seen a documentary of David Attenborough talking about Kākāpō while they were clamming all over him, and I thought, no, that's not fair. <laughs> I also want to do that. And so I did. I traveled around the country, and I volunteered for any conservation project that appealed to me, and there were lots. So some of the volunteering I did includes Kākāpō on Fenuahō Codfish Island, Takahe on Maud Island, Yellow-Eyed Penguins in Dunedin, Gray-Faced Petrels, Oi at um, Bethel's Beach, Tehinga, Volunteering at the Wingspan Birds of Prey Trust in Rotorua. It was wonderful. I mean, I could just walk into a dock office and say, So, what needs doing around here? And um, in Tiana, for instance, they said, Yeah, well, we could really do somebody, uh, do with some help for somebody to check the stoat traps in the Murchison Mountains. And so I did. That's actually where I saw my first takahe at Lake Orbel, where they were rediscovered in 1948. I really liked the conservation ethic, and all I wanted to do was one day work for Doc. <laughs> told <Don't> we all. <laughs> well, I persisted for many years, and in that time I did conservation volunteering around the world and other fantastic places. And I was delighted when, eventually, Doc offered me the position of banding officer in 2016. And I'm pretty sure that my original volunteering played quite a large role in that appointment.
0: What a career. That is an incredible start. Would you suggest volunteering as a really good road into conservation? It sounds like that's a great way. Absolutely. If anybody is
1: wondering whether conservation work is for them, Go try it out. There are so many wonderful opportunities in New Zealand. And in fact, we rely on volunteers to do a lot of the actual on-the-ground conservation work. It doesn't actually have to be volunteering in the field. You could even volunteer um, collating data, doing scanning of um, old archived records, which is what our volunteer in the banding office does. And so even if you want to be a desk jockey, you could still be conservation volunteer, you don't have to be out digging holes or um, killing stoats, etc.
0: That is good to know. And if people don't know where to start, do head to the volunteer part of the DOC website. So, so what is bird banding and why do we do it? Tell me about that.
1: I would say bird banding is a bit like a number plate on a car. It provides an individual identification. It has letters and numbers on it on a little metal plate. And that's the same as what we do with birds. So, for instance, if you see five sparrows in your backyard one day and you see five sparrows there the next day, and the day after that you see 10 sparrows, how many sparrows are there in your backyard? <laughs> 20. Uh, they well, <laughs> yeah, Exactly, exactly. So, the individual identification is what allows us to um, know for certain if it's the same bird that's been seen again or not. And of course, it, you can't always read that teeny tiny little number on the little metal band. Are they not quite as big as car number plates as the bird flies around? And so sometimes we add colour bands to aid in identifying birds without having to recapture them.
0: Okay, so what do the colours mean?
1: Well, it's not as though green means this birdie likes eating green grubs and, you know, red means he likes red berries or something like that. Actually, a specific color could be used to mark, for instance, all the robin chicks that were hatched in Zealandia in a given year. If they're all given a yellow color mark over the metal and the next year they use a different color, then that would be called cohort marking. So all the birds of a particular cohort or a particular year or even a particular area could, for instance, be given a similar colour. And then when you were to see them again, you'd know something about that bird without even needing to look up um, additional information. But you can also use several colours and the combination would tell you the identity, the individual identity of that bird. So when I run banding workshops for schoolchildren, And this is from kindergarten through to high school. We have all the kids color band themselves with these colored strips of cardboard on their legs. And they learn that you report color bands, left leg, top to bottom, and then right leg, top to bottom. And that's the bird's legs, not your own legs. But in this case, it's their own legs that that are color banded. And even four-year-olds know the names of colors. They know it in English and in Tereo. It's amazing. And most kids know left from right. Um, And so they all run around and they pretend to be birds and they record one another's unique color combinations. It's great fun. Um, But it's a nice way to teach them how to do the recording of color combinations and how important it is to ensure that those color combinations are unique. Otherwise, we won't be able to know which bird we're looking at. And the kids are also really quick to learn the first rule about bird banding. Don't do it. Which sounds a bit unintuitive, doesn't it? (laughs) So the first rule about bird banding is don't do it unless there's a purpose, a permit, and competent people, and all the
0: data are submitted to the banding office. Okay, so what species do get banded then, if it's very particular? Uh, We band all
1: species. Introduced species, native species, threatened species, game birds, etc. All of it is in order to learn more. Not only about that particular species, but potentially their interaction with other species, their movement over time, changes in distributions over time, how far they
0: move, how long they live, etc. So, what kind of information can we get from banding?
1: If a bird does something unexpected, does it do it again? <laughs> Have you ever heard of a banded, banded dotterel? You know, a banded dot that's been banded. Right. So there's a bird from Wellington named Pup, P-A-P, due to the letters on his flag, which is easy to spot from a distance without needing to catch this bird. So Pup was reported having a holiday during lockdown in 2020 in New Caledonia. Now, we know lots of Kiwi folk like going to the warmer islands during winter, but it was assumed that banded dodderals are uh, vagrants to New Caledonia. They only visit occasionally. So when pup was reported to us from New Caledonia, we thought maybe he was blown off course on his way to Australia or, you know, he's lost. We're not going to see this poor bird again. And then he returned to Eastbourne to nest with his partner, P-E-Y. And so he wasn't lost. And you know what? He went again in 2021 to the same spot at Nakuta Coin in New Caledonia without his partner. And we've just had news that he did the same trip again this year, there and back. So if he was just a banded dotteral and not a banded banded dotteral, we'd be none the wiser.
0: That is fascinating. And do other banded dotterals do that, or is that a real specific to PAP? Um, well, we know it's specific to
1: PAP because he's a banded banded dotteral. Okay. Um, other banded dotterals that come and go, we can't be certain whether they're the same ones or not.
0: Of course. And and um, the the Godwits, you band them as well, don't you? Tell me about yes. that. Yes.
1: Um, so a lot of what we know now about birds were actually first figured out through bird banding. So the bar-tailed godwit or kuaka, they don't like winters. So they spend the summer here in New Zealand. And then when winter approaches, they fly via China to Alaska. And they go and breed there in the Northern Hemisphere summer. And then after breeding, they fly 11,000 kilometers non-stop, directly back to New Zealand. They can't land on water. They can't sleep while flying. Eight days, non-stop, 11,000 kilometers. When they get here, they promptly fall asleep. And this was first worked out by researchers in Alaska watching banded birds depart and this was before the days of, you know, WhatsApp, et cetera, but they probably would have sent a message to the researchers here in New Zealand saying, this bird has just left now. And then they start the countdown. And w- then you have the uh, wader researchers in New Zealand watching when they arrive here and they can say that exact bird, there was a particular godward with a flag E7, that had done some amazing trips and when they arrive here then they can tell their counterparts in Alaska yes yes this bird has arrived and and they still do that both the birds as well as the bird watchers.
0: That's amazing how how do they stay alive during that trip so they can't land on water do they just they obviously eat enough and then go on their they way? They need to fatten up
1: prior to um, their long migration. And they even take into account the weather, the atmospheric conditions, the wind directions, etc. We now have birds with satellite transmitters on and we can look a lot more finely at their decisions and how they're impacted by all of these um, massive weather events or deciding to delay their departures. There's some birds that they have found depart New Zealand from exactly the same spot on the same day each year. Uncanny like clockwork. And, and we, we call them bird brains. It is unbelievable. But the first n- uh, knowledge of this was actually thanks to bird banding that we knew um, that they actually fly directly. They don't stop anywhere. And uh, it's just it, it's amazing what we can learn about these birds.
0: Is amazing. How do you decide which birds you're going to band?
1: Well, you know, they line up and they volunteer. They say, band me, band <laughs> me. <laughs> no, not actually. As I said, there has to be a purpose, a very good reason before you mark a bird. That bird is going to wear that band forever. So you need to find out what data... Uh, what data do you need to answer the questions you're trying to answer and how many birds actually need to be marked in order to do that. And so in order to obtain enough information, for instance, on longevity, you need to actually mark an inordinate number of birds in order to get enough data over time. And it might be hard to predict beforehand whether 10 birds are enough or 50, or maybe you need to mark 50,000 birds to get the data you want. The main thing is to ensure that the purpose of marking is such that that bird is not wearing that mark for no purpose.
0: That's such a good point. It it sounds quite scary to think of holding one of those birds and doing something like that to them. Um, How nerve-wracking is that for you?
1: Well, you know, whether you are holding an orange-fronted parakeet, kakariki karaka, or a sparrow, you need to be equally careful. Capturing and handling and marking, sampling, it's all very stressful for the bird, and it can be for the bander also. And the welfare of the bird is paramount, regardless of its conservation status. You're dealing with a fragile, live, and very special creature. And what you're about to do if you're going to put a band on, for instance, is going to affect that bird for the rest of its life. It's a bit like wearing a watch. If a watch irritates you, you can take it off. Or if it gets in the way, etc., and then you can put it on again when you want to, but birds can't do that with a band, and so we need to look at things from the bird's perspective, or whichever animal you're marking, um, and not only go, "Well, this is a threatened species; I better be more special, more more careful," or "This is some exotic um, introduced mm-hmm. bird; you know, I don't need to be as careful." Um, from the bird's perspective. It would probably rather be banded by an expert than by a trainee, but at any rate, we need to ensure that whoever handles and marks those birds are competent um, and keep the welfare of the bird and, uh, first and foremost.
0: That is such a good point, and that doesn't just apply to birds, right? It applies to all species.
1: Yes, in fact, when I used to be involved in shark research, where we would capture and mark great white sharks, um, I came up with an analogy to remind me to see things from the animal's perspective. So the sharky is happily swimming around in its own environment. And the next thing, we capture it and we pull it up out of the water And it sees bright sunlight. It's never seen the sun in its life. And so there's this really bright light. And so we cover the eyes of the shark in order to shield it from the bright light. But it's also, from the shark's perspective, in outer space. It can't even breathe. I mean, we've pulled it out of the water. And so we put a pump into the mouth in order to flush water over the gills. We turn the shark on its back. And it goes into tonic immobility. If you ever catch a shark, try it. Turn it on its back. (laughs) And it just lies there. And so we've pulled it onto our ship, um, you know, the big mothership in outer space uh, from the shark's perspective. And they're these tall alien beings, being ourselves. We're pretty alien to sharks. And what we do is we make a tiny incision and we insert an acoustic Transmitter inside the shark, and we sew it back up. We take all kinds of measurements and we learn lots about the shark while we're at it. But um, once we've done all of that, we release the shark back into its own environment, back into the water, obviously. And the sharky wakes up and it thinks, Whoa, something weird has just happened. I mean, I remember this bright light. I was definitely in outer space. Um, there were these tall alien beings. I was on, on a mothership, and I tell you, they're tracking me. And he's trying to tell his buddies, you know, these aliens have put a tracker on me, and they're watching my every movement. And his buddies go, yeah, right. <laughs> you okay? <laughs> um, so it's, it's a bit of a silly story, but it puts us in looking at things from the animal's perspective. Mm. So when we're capturing and marking these animals, what is that little birdie thinking when he's in your hand? Once you've put that mark on and he flies around and all his buddies see his bling, what's he telling them? <laughs> Dude, you have an ankle bracelet on. <laughs> what were you up to? <laughs> we don't really know. But it is good to ensure that what we do doesn't only take into account our own perspective but to look at it, um, put the shoe on the other foot, wear a band yourself, um, and uh, look at it from the animal's perspective.
0: And does it affect the birds that you band? So you've got a kia that's not banded and a kia that is banded. Is the banded kia, does it fly less fast because of the weight?
1: There's all kinds of um, impacts whether it's the capture process, the marking process, whatever you did to the bird, how long you held it while you were doing all of this. And we need to be cognizant of the fact that anything we do to these birds impacts them. Mm-hmm. And so minimizing our impact, ensuring that um, the people that are marking the birds as well as the marks and the equipment that are used are um, of the highest quality and have been assessed not to have a detrimental impact obviously it will have a detrimental impact we can't pretend it doesn't and so that's also why the first rule of bird banding is don't do it unless there's a good purpose and a permit and certified um, operators as well as the data coming into a centralized database because even if you mark that bird and you did it beautifully according to best practice and there's a purpose to marking it etc if the data are not held in a central repository then when that bird is ever recited again most often by members of the public who reported to us and that's incredibly valuable data if we don't have the record of the first marking of that bird, it was wearing that mark for nothing. It can't contribute to our broader knowledge. So pausing before marking is the best approach.
0: Brilliant. Well, it sounds like it's it's a very careful and thought-through process. And like you say, the first rule is don't do it. That brings us to training. I was pretty fascinated to learn that you actually have 3D-printed legs for learning, Tell us about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. When people ask, ooh, can I come and have a look at your legs? I I Mm -hmm. get some strange looks. (laughs) But to be clear, uh, these are 3D printed bird legs (laughs) to give trainees something realistic to practice on. Um, So I've also made puppets to attach the uh, legs to, to
0: make it a bit more. Like
1: holding an actual bird. And do
0: you Although, make them really unpredictable? Like- <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I've, I've tried really hard to make them poop and bite and struggle, but <laughs> <laughs> real birds are way better at that. Um, so, I mean, people have used twigs or um, spaghetti sticks, etc., to practice bird banding, which is brilliant, um, even dead specimens. Um, so, I thought that you're know, having a real leg, but maybe not a stinky. One would be a great to practice on, and we could even post them around the country on loan um, for people to, uh, you know, practice. And then they post us the legs back. Um, We we do receive actual legs in the post from time to time when someone picks up a, um, you know, some a bird that died on the beach, for instance. There was a little six-year-old boy that was on holiday, and um, he came across these. legs lying on the beach and they had tags on them and one of the tags every single band has an address on it and the address at the moment says send doc box 108 wellington so he wrote us a beautiful letter he said dear doc um we were walking on the beach and we found these legs with tags on them and one of them said send them to you so i am (laughs) but he sent them legs and all you know, not just the bands. So, so Sandy, our reciting's officer, receives these huh? letters in the post. No. <laughs> you first sort of want to feel, you know, are they squishy what? or not? <laughs> so generally we, we only need the information on the band. You know, the numbers, photographs would be marvelous. You may keep the bands. Mm. I don't suggest you keep the legs. And, and we don't really need them either. But we do have these 3D printed legs that people can use, um, you know, if they want to practice attaching and removing Oh, that.
0: my gosh. I'm just imagining the people at New Zealand Post as that got <laughs> sent through. Oh, that's a lovely thought by, and you know, trying to do the right thing. That's really cool. That reminds me of uh, um, the vet Kate McInnes that we had uh, on this podcast a long time ago who accidentally Um, tried to send a packet of um, Dorito chips, uh, a photo of them, um, back to the company. But because she's a vet for Doc, she had many things on her photo reel, including dead birds. And so she sent to Doritos um, a photo of a dead bird saying, I found this in a Doritos packet. What are you going to do about it? I can imagine that quite a few people get traumatized by the process of conservation. (laughs) If you think of your Doc career, can you tell me about a memorable discovery? We often
1: say that every band tells a story. We have over 400,000 stories and counting. There's one particular story about a banded Titi, Suti Shearwater, that secured compensation funding for Rakiura Maori. So the story of the big South Cape Islands Titi outlines the value of a banding system. Now, several of these islands um, uh, around uh, Rakiura, uh, uh, Stewart Island, were infested with rats, threatening the TT numbers and the iwi's ability to harvest birds. Now, zoot across to the opposite side of the world. In 1998, the release of bunker fuel by a vessel, the TV command, off the coast of the USA, killed thousands of seabirds, and amongst over a thousand birds that washed up dead on the Californian coastline, so picture this, icky oil-covered birds dead on the beach, 11 of those birds were Titi, and one of those had been banded at a New Zealand breeding colony by Otago University. And because the band actually says New Zealand, stamped on it, it provided a crucial link as to the providence of these birds, where they had come from. So this particular bird, Z27231, carried this band 11,329 kilometers, only to die in an oil spill. But it was not wearing its band in vain. Our long-term data set had the original banding record in, and this banding data was used in a court of law, resulting in compensation funding as a fine of over $600,000 that was then used to rid the rats from the Titi Islands through the Rakiura Titi restoration project. And this would not have happened in the absence of banded birds. And it indicates the value of data curation, having a good data set of banding records, as well as how active protection, a treaty principle, can be carried out.
0: That is such a, a bittersweet story and a sad outcome for one bird. But like you say, there are 400,000 stories and um... And I wonder what else has happened that's kind of incredible. Um, is, there, is there anything, there must be so many things that are quite strange that you've observed through banding. Can you think of any? Well,
1: we need to keep in mind that banding is for us as humans to tell the difference between birds. The birds don't read one another's bands to tell who's who as far as I can tell, at least. So I worked with ca- a captive population of African penguins, and there was one really fat bird called Zesty. Um, yep. He was huge. He weighed in at over six kilograms when the average adult weight is around three kilograms or two and a half, maybe. Whoa, zesty. Well, Zesty had a way with the girls. They just adored him. <laughs> He would have two or three girlfriends at a time, uh, even females who had a long-term partner. Uh, These are supposedly monogamous species. Um, And they must have thought that Zesty had access to amazing resources, you know, being so fat. Um, But the problem was that, you know, Zesty couldn't actually mate. You know, he'd fall off. And when incubating eggs, he would squash them. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but the females just loved him. But Porky, Porky, on the other hand, who wasn't fat, um, he was ancient. Who is naming I mean, these? <laughs> uh, you see, it's inevitable. When you attach a mark to an animal, they become individuals. And we learn more about their individual characters than if they were just one of many in a population. And that's part of what bird banding can show us. So there was this other bird called Porky. He was 33 years old, possibly the oldest African penguin ever, in captivity. In the wild, they probably only live between five and maybe 10, 12 years. Um, But Porky was still breeding at age 33. In fact, he had outlived three partners, and he would happily adopt any other chicks he was he was that good a father that he would he would adopt and feed any other chicks which is also not necessarily what we would expect these birds to do and then there was on the other end of the spectrum pinker who didn't wait for the normal 3 to 4 years of age to start breeding he sired chicks with not one but two different females, including one of them that was actually Zesty's girlfriend and already someone else's wife, before his second birthday. Um, But he wasn't so sure who he had to swap incubation duties with, and so he didn't. (laughs) You know, teenagers. (laughs) So there's a lot of this soap opera type stuff. That goes on in all bird societies. Um, it might even go against our assumptions of what we think birds get up to or whether they're monogamous and who cares for the chicks, etc., etc. But unless we can recognize the birds as individuals, mm. we actually don't know these stories. And so we banned them
0: and we learned lots and lots. That is amazing. I, I've heard a story about a penguin um, that would, uh, in order to get rocks for its nest, it would not be as monogamous uh, as they are supposed to, or said to be. I was so shocked. I thought penguins are monogamous. That's it. You know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um I feel like every day is probably at what most of us would call a bizarre day at work for you, but can you think of any outliers? In
1: terms of bizarre things? <laughs> A definition. officer yeah, would be would be good at that. She re- she's on the receiving end of all of these marvelous stories. So when members of the public see a bird that has been marked any mark, um, we really encourage them to report those to us because it's only really when a bird is recited that we can learn anything about it in terms of how far it's moved, how long it's lived, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so. We receive all kinds of stories, sometimes not even of marked birds. There was one memorable one of an email that we received about um, somebody that said they saw a kia, a big green thing, looks like a parrot, um, a a young one, maybe only a year old. um, But unfortunately, it was deceased on the roadside. And it was, wasn't was until they'd passed it driving, towing a house, that they realized what it was they saw. And so um, they emailed the banning office. Now, this isn't a marked bird, uh, as far as we could tell, but um, dead birds on the side of the road may well be worth investigating to see whether they do have marks on. And so because the finder was actually towing a house, they didn't stop, but We suggested to them, Kia don't really occur um, at Tapuki on the North Mm. Island. Um, And so they thought, okay, well, they'd better Google what it is they saw. And they sent us a photograph. This is what we saw, a kākāpō. Now, we have joked within uh, Department of Conservation that when people start reporting roadkill of kākāpō, we have reached our conservation goals.
0: So, uh, Yeah. (laughs) I'm not disagreeing but with
1: you. <laughs> I'm not quite sure we're there yet. <laughs> so they sent us this photograph of a kakapo saying this is what they saw. And they're going to return to the spot to see if it's still there. Oh and um, with a little side note saying, I think I need to educate myself on NZ birds. So off they went to go and find this um Kopo on the side of the road and they were so disappointed absolutely gutted it wasn't there I mean they were so certain they walked up and down the side of the road trying to find this bird that they saw and they didn't but hopefully through all of this and them now understanding that we actually have a banding office and a banding scheme um and their understanding that they should learn a little bit more about New Zealand birds. <laughs> Despite their disappointment and saying it was very, very bizarre and they really, really wanted to to report it. If you were to find something, no matter how bizarre, please tell us about it. Mm. There may well be something in it that we can learn from, or that you can learn from.
0: That so they the, the thought was there, which is which is great. Unlikely to be Sorocco on. The Absolutely, side of the road, n- hopefully not. <laughs> um We've had some wonderful oh eight hundred doc hot um, ones that I always want to just tell people about because they're so brilliantly funny. Someone called saying um, you've got to come around There's a penguin on my roof, and, and Doc's like, um "Penguins can't actually fly," and they're like, "Well, this one can." Um, <laughs> it's on <my> roof. <laughs> just some of my favorite favorite stories, but really good to to call it in anyway because you're right. There might be something in it. Um, Is there a is there a favorite conservation conversion fact that you tell people to get them hooked?
1: I would say I don't work in conservation. I work for conservation. Hmm. It's not just a job. And after all these years of volunteering around the world, I still continue to volunteer. And it's knowing that you're making a difference that gets people hooked. If, they, if, if they're curious, go give it a try. Even if it's just volunteering, see whether you want to work in conservation or whether you want to work for conservation. But just remember, it's not just a job. It'll take over
0: your life. <laughs> That's such a good point. What kind of volunteering do you do at the moment?
1: Mostly, ironically, for the banding office. <laughs> <laughs> So as I said, you could do volunteering by sitting behind a desk. Yeah. And one of the things I thoroughly enjoy is now that we have a new centralized bird banding database set up that is openly accessible for our banders to submit data, my biggest thrill, and it doesn't sound like conservation, but for me it is, is when banders submit clean Data sets. I, I, I don't like dirty data. And so a lot of my volunteering is um, cleaning dirty data. Mm,
0: satisfying. So,
1: dirty data would be, for instance, um, if you want to know what dirty data might uh, look like, <laughs> when somebody reports a reciting record of a banded bird on a date prior to that bird being banded, uh. or a doubly dead duck. Did, did you know, I mean, there's some ducks that just keep dying over and over and over. When we should keep... tell someone. <laughs> you know, like nine lives of a cat. <laughs> so ensuring that the records we keep are valuable for comparison with 30 years ago, 50 years ago. And then we have a clean data set that people can use in the next 20 and 50 and 100 years' time, if we're looking at change over time, whether it's climate change impacts or distribution or um, the improvements that we're bringing about through our predator control efforts, we want to be able to compare data sets at different points in time. Mm. We can't do that if we don't have all the data in one place, and we can't have much confidence in our data unless we ensure those records are clean. So I enjoy cleaning data.
0: So instead of getting a courier bag and sending it to you, what should I do if I find a dead or an injured banded bird?
1: First thing would be to contact your local doc office, if it's, especially if it's an injured bird. Um, but if it's a banded bird, don't capture the bird just to read the band number. Um, take photographs if you can. Um, and report the band number and the details to the banding office. Um, and on our Falcon app, we have a sightings form that steps you through how to report this. And that's at app.birdbanding.doc.govt.nz. Um, and we'll be able to respond to you regarding the banding details of that bird. And uh, photographs are the best way to double check the species, um, ensure you report the locality, and any other information that might be important, such as um, has it been injured by a dog or a cat, or is this bird, I don't know, sitting on your roof, um, sharing your lunch, um, dead on the beach, dead next <laughs> to the side of the road, etc. <laughs> Took a turn.
0: Um, oh, okay, that's that's brilliant. And how do I go about getting myself some 3D legs or going to a banding workshop should I want to become a bird bander like 1,100 people in New Zealand?
1: We have a system of um, level one trainees and you need no experience to register as a level one trainee bander so contact the banding office banding (laughs) office at doc and register as a level one trainee bander but remember Bird banding isn't something we do for our entertainment. We need to learn about the birds, their molt, morphometrics, movement, breeding, survival, population sizes, habitat use, etc. We band them in order to gain this knowledge. We don't band them because it's a fun thing to do for ourselves. So if you'd mm-hmm. like to contribute to all of that, then by all means, learn to become a competent bander. Just be prepared to put in the effort. It can take months or even years. And you can't learn bird banding through attending a workshop or a course. And if you're a level one trainee bander, you can't capture or mark birds unless you're directly supervised by a level three expert. And so we can put you in touch with people who are already running projects that you can participate in.
0: Brilliant. Conservation is often talked about as fighting the good fight, where, you know, we have this incredible job that we're doing for conservation. Um, but it sometimes can be quite challenging. What is something challenging about working in conservation you find?
1: Well, sometimes, as you say, it feels like you're swimming upstream or your voice is too faint. To be heard above the noise of everything else going on in trying to achieve something. In the banding office, we have a motto, never give up. Mm-hmm. And no matter how challenging a task is, giving up is a sure way to fail.
0: Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the show. This I've learned so much and you've inspired me to work. For conservation, not in conservation. I think that's a really special, um, special way to look at it. Um, the, the when to band and when not to band. I had no idea that it was that specific and that particular, and that there's so much thought that goes into not banding and how you really need that data. Um, and I'm excited to look at the falcon um, database and see what see start looking around me and see what birds I can see that I can help help out with the resightings for. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Kia ora. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Erica Wilkinson, and this has been the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts or you can stream it off our website, doc.gov.nz. This podcast is produced by Jane Ramage with sound and editing by Laura Honey. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and show our hardworking guests some love. Ka kite.